We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com B-E. We all talk a lot about increasing student voice and choice as well as teachers. But how do we actually get that done? Do we hold meetings with students and then maybe cherry pick a few things that they say and put it into action? Do we do the same with teachers? Well, this week on Seeing to Lead, I speak with Carla Mayrink, who gives us quite a few strategies to authentically incorporate student and teacher voice and choice to increase their sense of belonging and being heard. Hey, everyone. Dr. Jones here with another episode of Seeing to Lead. This one is really going to help you walk away with some awesome ideas around student and teacher voice and choice. I mean, Carla brings up the idea of student think tanks. Student think tanks, where she lets the students get together, do research, and come up with ideas. Did you ever think students would come back and say they're not just interested in cross-curricular projects, but also multi-age, so they can themselves build a larger network of friendships and perspectives rather than just those in their own age group? Or what about the idea of modeling the type of PD we talk about? Inserting half days for PD into every week, having teachers active participants in the PD with products at the end, much like we ask students to do in the classroom. But it doesn't stop there. Carla gives us some great examples of how her school's version of restorative practices is working. That's just a taste of the topics that we talk about in this episode. There is a lot more having to do with grading teachers instead of evaluating them, giving up control, and holding in your mind the idea that when dealing with difficult behaviors or situations, fear is always faster and the quickest answer to your mind, which is why it's important to step back and reflect before we move forward, which, by the way, yeah, we talk about how to teach reflection too. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Seeing to Lead. And I really want to send a special shout out to all those that have subscribed and left a five-star rating and review for the show. I have to say, I was checking them out the other day and reading through them and was happy to hear how many people were benefiting. So thank you. And if you haven't taken the time to do that yet, go ahead and hit subscribe and leave a five-star rating and review if what you hear in these shows provides value to you. And even better, go ahead and share it if you know others that will find value in it. Well, enough about that. Let's get to all those things I promised in this episode with Carla Mayrink on Seeing to Lead. Let's talk about flex time in schools. 
The potential benefits to our students make it worth exploring. More time for personalized learning, increased choice and agency for students, and the increased engagement that comes along with it. Dedicated time for intervention. Overall, as school leaders, it gives us and our faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be a challenge. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold us back from ensuring students make good use of their time. I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and an intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. Want to see for yourself? Visit MyFlexLearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's MyFlexLearning.com B-E. If we want people to be empowered, we have to let them have control. If we're controlling them, we don't empower them. So basically, I would say give up control, try new things, be willing to try new things. Because if it doesn't work, you can always go back. That's not a problem. But I think that education needs to really change. It needs to make huge change. And that won't happen if we're all just sticking to our safe little factory model that we've always had. It won't happen if we don't trust our teachers to do the best that they can. Our teachers are working hard. They know their students. They are trustworthy. So if we want to control them constantly and micromanage them constantly, we don't give them the freedom to become the best that they can be. And therefore, they don't let their students have the freedom to become the best they can be. So I would say give up control. Dr. Chris Jones here, and welcome to Seeing to Lead, a show designed to help leaders increase their ability to effectively support, engage, and empower their staff through intentional practices so that they create an environment where everyone reaches their greatest level of success. On Seeing to Lead, communication rules the day as we hear voices from both teachers and leaders in an effort to examine perspectives, highlight misunderstandings, and provide steps to ultimately bridge the gap between what teachers need and provide through thoughtful dialogue. This show is about amplifying voices, creating understanding, and providing information to help everyone continually improve. I want to personally thank you for taking the time. Now, let's get to getting better. Barla Mayrink is the director and co-founder of the Community for Learning, an international school in the Dominican Republic. For the past 32 years, she has worked as a secondary language arts teacher, an academic coach, and school director. She presents workshops on new initiatives in education, including restorative practices, student-led learning, coaching, leadership skills, and professional development. Her work on inquiry-based professional development has been highlighted in Edutopia. She has presented at AMLI 2020, the Virginia ASCD 2020 Annual Conference, the Equity and Anti-Bias Conference 2021, the FETC 2022, and others. Carla shares teaching strategies and innovations on her blog, The Teaching Experiment. I am really happy that Carla and I were able to connect and her as a guest on my podcast today because I'm especially interested in the community for learning and the idea of restorative practices and inquiry-based professional development. So I can't wait to have this conversation. Carla, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much, Chris. I'm really excited to be here. Very excited. (laughs) Yeah, this is, I'm really excited about this conversation, especially for the reasons that I said. But to kind of kick us off, because I have a feeling that your inquiry-based professional development and your restorative practices are all part of your community for learning, which you co-founded. So how about you start us off by telling us all about that and how you came to founding and what it's all about? Okay, so basically, well, we're on our, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. So 25 years ago, we decided to open the school, my business partner and I, simply because we couldn't find the education that we wanted for our own kids. The education they were receiving was pretty memorization based, and we were looking for more critical thinking, creative thinking, things like that. And I decided to go back to Canada because I felt like I would get a better education for my kids there. But my husband is a surfer and he said, no, you're not leaving. And I opened a school. And so I said, okay, well, let's give it a shot. And we opened a school with eight kids, eight families who were brave enough or silly enough to put their kids in our school, which was just a small house on a street. And we began that way. And it grew fairly quickly. I think people were at that time looking for that kind of education. They were looking for more having the kids actually do things, create things, uh, think critically, uh, just be more engaged in their learning. And so it just kind of took off after that. That's a fantastic story. And for two reasons. Uh, One, because we always talk about as leaders in education, we want an environment that we would feel good about having our own kids in. And the idea that you didn't like the opportunities that were being presented to your students, your own kids, that you said, well, okay, Uh, it sounds like you said, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to start my own school where that opportunity is there. Yeah. You said you started with eight kids. Were yours some of the eight? Well, actually that made 11. (laughs) Two of my own and one of my business partners, but they were free, so they didn't count. But yeah, there were 11 kids all together. Eight of them were paying. And we just did a lot of after-school programs and things like that to be able to pay the rent and do whatever we had to do to make the school take off. Honestly, we thought that we would get maybe a couple of dozen kids in the school and we would bring them up to graduation. We would get them out of school and we would close it. We had no idea that this would take off and become a school that my kids graduated 12 years ago and we're still going. So it's... Uh, That's fantastic. 25 years later. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So talk to me a little bit about this. Well, I mean, some of the things you mentioned, the critical thinking, the hands-on. What's a day in the life of a student at this school look like? So it's changed quite a bit since we started. We try to stay up to date and uh, keep... I I write a blog called The Teaching Experiment because that's what we do. We experiment constantly. We try new things. Basically, our school changed a lot this past year because after the pandemic, we knew that even though we were different, even though we were innovative, it still wasn't enough. And when kids came back from laying in bed for a year and a half doing school from that, they did not want to go back into the little, you know, boxes that we had at school. And we knew we had to make changes. but Teachers were extremely overwhelmed. And to say to them, now we'd like you to actually make changes in your classroom, I think they would have all quit. So we took the first year to just kind of find our bearings and get through. And I'm kind of a person that likes to jump into new things. So I had to really control myself and hold myself back. 
Towards the end of the year, I asked a group of students to form a think tank and to come up with ideas for change in the school because I thought that it would be better if it was coming from the students. And these uh, seven kids, they just ran with this project. And I expected them to, you know, do some research and a couple of weeks later come up with some recommendations. But it took them two months. They interviewed absolutely everybody in the school. They interviewed teachers and parents and students. And they came up with these ideas. And so we implemented those ideas this past year. And we will continue to implement those. And what we're looking for now is a way to do cross-curricular, but also multi-age projects so that kids, uh, one of the things they kept saying over and over again is we only work with kids in our class that are the same age. We want to know other people. We want to know kids that are older than us, kids that are younger than us and feel comfortable with them, not just say hello to them in the hallway. So we wanted to do that, but then we realized that to do that, you have to have the time and space for it. And that means you can't just have these little siloed subjects areas. And we had to change that. So we put in a project day and that right now is every two weeks. So teachers are now asking for it more often. Uh, but this year it was every two weeks and the kids, the kids have a, pro- a full day to do nothing but projects or work on whatever they want to. So they can go and meet with a, They can meet with teachers for office hours for extra help. They can form a club. They can go off and do work outside of the school if they have permission. They can do whatever they want. And they set up their own agenda and they work. And one of the things that is really beautiful about this is we thought a lot of kids wouldn't just not show up to school that day. They'd be like, oh, well, it's project day. I'm going to stay home. But they don't. It's their favorite day. They love coming to school that day. They tell me constantly that it's the best day they've ever had. And they feel so empowered by setting their own goals, by working on what they want to work on. So that has really allowed us to do quite amazing uh, different projects. Like right now we have uh, the end, it, the seventh graders are studying ancient Japan and they're making a Japanese garden. And they have uh, the eighth and 10th grade science students working on it with them for different parts of it. Like getting water out of the well is part of what the 10th graders are working on. We have the makerspace working with them as well. And so on those project days, you see about 40 or 50 kids all coming together to work on a project that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So that's part of what we're doing. Another area that we work on with them is self-assessment, because I really feel that if kids are going to go forward in life, now that you have to learn every day of your life to keep up with what's going on in the world, They have to be able to assess how they're doing. They have to know whether they're doing a good job or not. And if we don't train them for that, uh, I don't think they can be successful anymore in the real world. So these are parts of what they do. They, uh, they, when they get assessed at school, they do take quizzes and tests in certain classes, but the teachers don't grade it for them. They might mark uh, answers that are incorrect, but they tell them now, I want you to look through it and assess yourself and see how well you did. Uh, when they do their reading or their writing pieces, they have to self-assess on their, on a rubric and tell the teacher what they think they deserve. And it has been very powerful for them because they can now see before they hand in something what they need to work on and improve. So this is all part of what they do. I don't know if I'm being very clear. No, you're being a hundred percent clear. I mean, like, this is why so I'm excited to talk to you. So, you know, eight minutes in, you just said some fantastic things. And just to, I just want to kind of go back a little bit to make sure the listeners really caught what you said. So 
student think tanks. The first thing when you said that, because we talk about student voice and choice and meeting with students and everything, but you said student think tanks. And I was like, what? (laughs) Especially when you explained it. So you said you created student think tanks and you thought it was going to be a little bit of a process, but two months and they interviewed different people and they came back with suggestions that were then implemented. Like I have to ask, how much guidance was given to them during that? There had to be some support because... Well, you nailed the engagement and the empowerment piece. So, yeah, they they actually got very little support. We met with them to give them some resources that they could look at. And they watched uh, some documentaries on different schools. They looked at resources in the What School Could Be website, which has some amazing stuff. And what we told them basically was... You won't get a grade for this. This is just because you're interested. It's going to be a lot of work. And you can say, no, you don't have to do it. You can, we'll find other people if you don't want to. But also you're charged with dreaming the impossible for school. We would like you to go above and beyond what you think we actually can do. Because it's by looking at the impossible that we can begin to imagine how to make that possible. And uh, and then what? Basically, our role was to set up time and space for them to meet and to be able to set up their interviews. When they were going to interview parents, we invited the parents in for them, but we did not go into the room with them because we felt like parents needed to be free to complain about school, to say what they wanted to say without the director being sitting there watching them. So they, the kids did this all on their own. And it was really exciting to see them because they, after After the first meeting with students that they did, they set up this meeting and they had made a vision board that they presented to the students. And at the, this happened just before lunchtime. And we had set up a period of time at the end of the school day where they could debrief on the meeting, but they couldn't wait. They all just sat there. They said, no, we're not going for lunch. We need to talk about this right now. And they gave each other such wonderful feedback about the way they asked questions about what worked and what didn't work. They had worked on their vision board for weeks. And they decided to scrap it. They said the vision board was theirs. It empowered them. It gave them lots of information, but it left the kids cold. The kids in the class just weren't interested in the least little bit. And they decided to show them just a short two-minute video clip about the future of work that showed robots taking over everything. And they said, okay, now what are we going to do? And they said, this is how we're going to grab the kids. We're going to show them the robots picture, and then we're going to tell them, how does school need to change to get us ready for that future? And that's how they did it. So basically, they got no guidance from us. And I have to say, some of them were very shy, uh, kind of introverted kids. They became such leaders. They learned to speak. One one of the girls said, I learned that I have a voice and I need to use it. And it was just beautiful. Oh, that's fantastic to hear a statement like that from a student. Uh, You know, and that's just the think tanks. You said something else earlier in the day of life of a student where cross-curricular, right? We all talk about cross-curricular projects and bringing the different subjects together, especially at the high school, we talk about that a lot. But you said multi-age projects and then started to explain how with ancient Egypt, the seventh graders doing a project, pulling in the eighth graders and 10th graders. I think that's just so fantastic to take it that extra step. Was this the outcome of student suggestions? How did you come up or come across the idea of doing that? Well, it really did come from the students. They said when they presented to the teachers, they let them know that they wanted 
that they really wanted to be working with kids from different age levels. And they didn't exactly say how that would happen. They just, it was one of the main key pieces that they said. They said, you know, we're, we, for some reason, sit in classrooms with all the 16-year-olds together or all the eight-year-olds together. We want to be able to mingle more. And so a few things came from that. They, in elementary, they began passion pursuit. And those are first through third graders work together and fourth through sixth graders work together. And the kids wrote down absolutely every interest they have. Like right now, they're learning to make sushi because some of them wanted to make sushi. So it's truly what the kids want to do. And it changes about every eight weeks. So for about eight weeks, they try out a new passion. And and that's multi-age. The kids, they love it. And I really like watching some kids in fifth, sixth, the fourth through sixth grade groups learn to crochet last in the last passion pursuit. And then the littler ones said, we want to learn to crochet too. So now the big ones are in there teaching the little ones how to crochet. And it's just really nice to see because they start to feel more like, we call ourselves the community for learning, but this really enhances that community feeling. The kids also, we decided to start an advisory. We had never had a space for the advisory, but since we have project day, we started with an advisory and those advisories are also mixed age levels. So we have uh, seventh through ninth grade kids in advisories and then 10th through 12th grade kids in advisories. So there might be, I don't know, eight to 10 kids in an advisory, but they're all of those mixed levels. And it's really fun to watch because we see them at lunchtime now getting together with kids at, and sitting and having lunch with kids at different age levels. And we never used to see that. So this, but this came from them. It was like they wanted uh, space and time to do projects. They wanted space. They wanted a way to to be mingling with the other kids and get to know kids. And then once they told the teachers that, then the teachers began getting together to think of different ways that they could do projects together. We had teachers in the past doing projects together, but they struggled because there was, how do we get together? How do we get these kids together? So when they found that they had project day, at first, it was really funny. They'd come up and say, hey, so Carla, are we allowed to do this? And I'm like, yes, collaborate, do this thing. And and it just became it just became richer and richer. As teachers saw other teachers doing things, they were like, oh, hey, I want to be on that. And they would get involved with different things. And now we have projects going all over the place that are just amazing. That's fantastic. And what I really like about this whole thing is it really falls in line with the name community for learning and what you had said at the beginning, the teaching experiment, which is the name of your blog. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can follow along on some of these fantastic things. What I'm wondering though, is you're talking about a teaching experiment. So in that, it's just try new things and try to do different things and get better at different things. Supporting your teachers and students seems to be a struggle. They just don't seem to be engaged. You wish they would take more responsibility for their learning and culture of the building, but they just don't seem to be empowered enough to do it. So my question is, have you checked out the book Seeing to Lead yet? It's all about creating a true educational experience where learning, growth, leadership, and community take center stage. Full of strategies and resources, Seeing to Lead is about attaining that goal by employing a model that supports, engages, and empowers all individuals to become leaders themselves. Pick up a copy today at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com.
Remember, you don't become a leader and then decide you need to support and recognize others more than yourself. It is the moment you realize it's about supporting and recognizing others that you become a leader. Seeingtolead.com. Mention inquiry-based PD and how you've presented about that. Talk to us a little bit about inquiry-based PD and how that plays into your school. I'm really interested in how teachers stay current and continually innovate like it sounds like you're doing. Okay, so we always believed in ongoing PD, so not a sit and get once in a while, but constant ongoing PD that teachers could, the coaches could go into the classroom and observe them actually trying to implement what was going on in PD. So when we started the school, we uh, sent the kids home at 12 o'clock on Fridays and we keep our teachers in PD till 2.30. So every Friday we have a space for PD. At first we did the regular, you know, we put on workshops and we gave, but it was easy. There were four of us, five of us, six of us. So we could meet our needs pretty easily. But as we grew and as some of our teachers were coming into the school brand new and other teachers had been there for 12 years, it became clear that we needed to do something that would allow teachers to meet their own needs. And also, if we want teachers to differentiate their students and to do inquiry-based learning with their students, we had to model it in our PD. So we began our inquiry PD with sort of choices. At first, there was like six different choices and they there were books and they could choose how they wanted to do it, but they met in groups around certain things that interested them. But as we went along, we opened it up more and more. So now teachers can choose what they want to, what they want to work on. They kind of publish it on a document. And if other teachers want to join them, they do, but otherwise they can work independently. They all have coaches and the coaches work with them to help them implement whatever they're studying in their classrooms and to have that support as they do it. So this allows teachers to have voice and choice do what they want to do, obviously within our philosophy. So if they come up with something that really doesn't match our philosophy, we'll sit and talk to them about it. But that hasn't really happened too often because they know the philosophy so well and they know what we're looking for. Our teachers do, our coaches do student-centered coaching, meaning that we don't observe the teachers so much. We observe the impact on students. And this allows Student-centered coaching allows teachers to be the ones that take the decisions in their coaching. Whatever their decision is and what they want to change with the coach becomes the catalyst for their inquiry-based PD, basically. So what we've been trying to do is just make sure that everything we want to see teachers doing with their students, they are seeing from us. So uh, I wrote once about going gradeless in assessment of teachers. We don't assess our teachers. We go in and we observe and we focus on their strengths and work with them from their strengths to improve. If a teacher is really struggling, then we might have a long conversation about something, but that's not generally what happens. So all of this is, if we want teachers to work from students' strengths, we need to work from teachers' strengths. If we want teachers to know how to do inquiry, we have to let them do inquiry in their own learning. Another area that we've been looking at now in the last couple of years is having teachers at set goals for themselves, reassess their students to see where they're at, try strategies, and then 
post-assess to see how they've done and then reflect on their learning. And what we discovered is many teachers don't know how to reflect. And we had to teach that. And how do we get teachers to teach kids to reflect on their learning if they themselves don't know how to reflect on their learning? So all of this is so integrated. It all becomes, um, it just, each thing just follows naturally one thing from the next. And we see our teachers implementing what they're doing. What we do in PD is being implemented in the classrooms. So it, it, it works. What an incredible system of support for both teaching and learning. It's just really focused on the idea of getting better and how that happens without any type of punishment behind it. I really like the idea that you mentioned reflection and how you highlighted the idea that there are plenty of people out there who just don't know how to reflect. And if our teachers don't know how to reflect, how do they ever get that across to students or teach students to? And that's one of the most important pieces of learning is to take what's occurred and learn from it. It's an experience, good or bad. And without reflection, you can't do that. Exactly. I was just going to say how you talk about working with your teachers and coaching your teachers and supporting them. I also think about the same aspect working with students. And I know that you talk about restorative practices and with all of these fantastic things going on in this type of culture, how do restorative practices play into your school? And was that something from the beginning or is that something you came across and implemented? It started from the very beginning, although we did not know the term restorative practices and we have never heard of that. But as we found out about restorative practices, we said, oh, that's kind of what we're doing. And we started learning more about it and implementing it more. But at the beginning of the school, I had learned, I had worked in several different schools as a new teacher. And as the new teacher, I got the exciting job of manning the detention hall. And what I saw in every detention hall I ever sat in was that I got to know the kids really well because the same kids showed up over and over again. And so it became pretty clear to me that detention hall just wasn't working to change behavior at all. And uh, we decided to try something different. I had seen a book called Punished by Reward. Oh, Punished by Rewards by L.P. Cohn. And another book called, oh, Behavior Without Stress or something like that. I'd have to get you the name of the book. But it talked about the fact that kids should be given, we should have a lot of different ways of helping kids improve their behavior in class. And that if they did continue to misbehave over and over again, we should give them warnings. And finally, we gave them a formal oral warning. And that meant that if you continued to do it, you were going to have to go and write a letter to your parents about what was happening. And that became, instead of getting a punishment, they would sit definitely in the beginning with me since I was the high school principal or they would sit with me and they would talk about what they did, why they did it, really reflect on where that behavior was coming from and then how it affected other people and how they could make amends or make it better Um, and how they could avoid doing it next time. So if they said, you know, I was rude to the teacher because I was in a really bad mood because my mom... And I had a fight in the car when I came to school this morning and it just couldn't get it off my mind. And when the teacher spoke to me, it sounded like my mom. So I just was rude back and I just couldn't control myself. So we sit and talk about that. Okay, so the next time something like that happens, what could you do differently? Could you tell the teacher that you're in a bad mood and just go run around the field a little bit to get rid of that? Could you go talk to the counselors? 
Could you sit in a corner and talk to a friend or just complain? Or could you write in a journal? Like, what are some of the strategies you could use to help yourself manage those emotions so that you're not getting in trouble or so that you're not behaving badly to other people? And what we found was that when kids reflected, those letters take a good hour and a half to write because it starts out with, that teacher's crazy. I didn't do anything. It's really hard for the kids to to actually recognize what they've done wrong. But if they can really uh, own it, if they can say, yes, this I take responsibility for what I, I did this wrong. And if they can explain why and come to that, that behavior rarely shows up again. We see them improving so much. They also learn to apologize and really mean it. And we never ask a child to apologize if they don't want to apologize. And in fact, if in the letter they want to say to their parents, I really don't see anything wrong with what I did and I refuse to apologize to anybody for it because I think the teacher was being mean and I think it's her fault, not my fault. We'll put that in the letter. We want them to be able to truly express what they feel and learn from it. As time goes on, so when they're, say, in fourth and fifth grade and they have a lot harder time managing their emotions, they'll have to do these kind of reflections more. It's not always a letter home. It might just be a behavior reflection with the teacher. But as they get older, it's amazing. Uh, We have people come into the school, walk into a classroom and say, where's the teacher? And the teacher's in a corner somewhere working with a student, but everybody else is on task. Or the teacher may have gone to the bathroom, which in other schools you can't do. You can never go to the bathroom and leave the kids alone. But our teachers do it. They don't have a problem with that. Because you can't tell when the teacher's there or when the teacher's not there. The behavior becomes intrinsically motivated and the kids behave no matter what. It takes longer. Fear is faster. But when they come to terms with what they're doing and they actually in school because they want to be in school and they're interested in what they're doing, we just see those behavior issues disappear. So I don't know if it's 100% restorative practices. We do have... Uh, class meetings where they talk about their feelings. We have all kinds of mediated meetings. If there's kids not getting along with each other, we will have mediated meetings where they talk to each other and get rid of their problems. But whatever it is, it really works. That's fantastic. I'm so glad I asked that question because, you know, a lot of times we hear restorative practices and, and some people are all in and then you have the other side of the spectrum that nothing like that is ever possible and it's not effective. The key phrase I heard from you is fear is faster. Just as a reminder too, that oftentimes the quickest result that we want, we have to look at what's motivated, what it's motivated by before we make that decision or take that action. Well, when I worked in other schools, I was, you know, the leader of the behavior in my classroom. I could get the kids in trouble. If the director walked up to my door and said, Carla, can you step into the hallway for a second to talk to me? I would walk out and I could, I could hear the disaster happening in the classroom behind me. And when I walked in, there'd be paper balls all over the floors and all of them would be sitting like little angels with their hands crossed on their desk (laughs) because they only behaved if I was there and they were afraid of being in trouble. That's the difference is if, if you are extrinsically motivated to behave, it's, you don't internalize it and it makes a big difference. Right. I mean, you've said so much about quite a few things today, but as we're winding up the podcast, we're getting to the end of the, the episode here. I have two questions I ask everybody that comes on the show. The first one is, if you weren't an educator, 
who, not what would you be? So who meaning a person, right? <laughs> it can mean a person. It can mean a type of person. It's completely open to your interpretation. Well, honestly, I would be Margaret Atwood if I were smart enough. <laughs> okay. All right. Because <laughs> she's a brilliant writer. She's hilarious. And she's, I don't know, 70-something or 80-something years old. And she is still researching and so curious. I want to be that curious person for the rest of my life. It sounds like the curiosity and the inquiry piece of that is what's driving that and the, the consistent learning. Yep, exactly. So I, I've got one more for you. The final question is, especially if you've said everything you've said, what's the most important piece of advice you would give to leaders as they work to better support, engage, and empower those they serve? Huh, that's Well, there's a lot of different things, but I don't know. One of the things that I think is most important is giving up control. If we want people to be empowered, we have to let them have control. If we're controlling them, we don't empower them. So basically, I would say give up control, try new things, be willing to try new things. Because if it doesn't work, you can always go back. That's not a problem. But I think that education needs to really change. It needs to make huge change. And that won't happen if we're all just sticking to our safe little factory model that we've always had. It won't happen if we don't trust our teachers to do the best that they can. Our teachers are working hard. They know their students. They are trustworthy. So if we want to control them constantly and micromanage them constantly, we don't give them the freedom to become the best that they can be. And therefore, they don't let their students have the freedom to become the best they can be. So I would say give up control. So perfectly said. I have nothing else. I'm speechless. And those that know me realize that's pretty much a rarity. So so good on you. But you know what? With everything that you've said, I'm sure there's some people that are going to want to reach out to you. What's the best way somebody can get in touch with you? Well, I'm hugely involved on Twitter. I love Twitter. So at Carla Mayrings, we'll get them there for sure. If they want to email me, my email address is Carla. That's with a C, at tcfl.edu.do. So they can always email me there. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for that. But more importantly, thank you so much for coming on and being a guest on Scene to Lead today. You've said some fantastic things and given a lot of people a lot of things to think about. This was really fun, Chris. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great. Well, that's a wrap, but not the end. Next step, be sure to take action on something you heard here today. Hey, thanks for listening to the Scene to Lead podcast. If you would like to connect for any reason, email me at drchrissj at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at drcsjones. If you've gotten any value from the Scene to Lead podcast today, you can help me and other leaders create a world-class environment through a teacher-centric approach by subscribing to the show, leaving an honest rating and review, and sharing this episode on social media with your most valuable takeaway. Also, one last thing. Have you had a chance to pick up my latest five-star rated book yet? Grab your copy of Seeing to Lead anywhere you buy books or at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com where you can learn more and continue to improve. 
Now go have a successful week. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com B-E.